the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. I have my overwhelming peace for you. I want you to understand my wholeness and my goodness towards you. I don't intend harm for you. He said, I don't intend harm. That's the other part of this passage. No harm intended. See, when God is disciplining us, it's easy for us to think God's out to get us. He's punishing me for something. Okay, listen, there's a difference between punishment and discipline. God disciplines those whom he loves. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Jeremiah. God disciplines those he loves. Parents have expectations of their children. If a parent is wise, they won't shelter their child from the potential of failure. It's in falling that you learn to get back up. God, being infinitely wiser and more loving than even the best human parent, knows what's best for you as his child. As Pastor Gary will explain in today's message, as you go through the consequences of your failure, seek God and trust Him to bring you through to victory. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Jeremiah chapter 29 as he continues his message, Restoration. God was saying over and over again through the prophets, if you'll turn to me, the Babylonians don't need to come. If you turn to me, they don't need to come. If you don't turn to me, they're coming. So his mercy was there on the front end, but they didn't heed his warning. They rejected the word of the prophet. They rejected God. And so the Babylonians came. Babylonians hauled them off to captivity where they will spend 70 years. But the beauty of God is that not only is is his mercy evident in the front end, but his mercy is evident in in the back end of this story. Because even after the 70 years, it's not like God has washed his hands of them. He still is going to display his mercy to them by bringing them back and restoring them. And this is what he does here in chapter 29. What is so amazing to me is that they they have barely gotten over to Babylon. And God says to Jeremiah, I want you to write a letter. I got a letter that I want to dictate to you. I want to inspire to you. And I want you to write this letter down. And I want you to send it by way of a messenger. So two guys take this letter, their name there, to Babylon. And let it be read among the elders and the priests and the people. Because I want them to know I'm not done with them. I want them to know that there's still mercy on the other end of this. Okay, now here's why this whole story is important to us. Because we need God's mercy too. 
And there have been times I've sinned against the Lord on the front end of his mercy. And I'm so thankful that there's still mercy on the back end. Anybody else? Amen. And this is the way God is with us. And we can't lose sight of this. This is an amazing, remarkable thing. When you understand what's happening here, I hope you do. That God's like, okay, okay, I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to send you to Babylon. But then they're no sooner there than God says, I want you to write this love letter to them. Jeremiah, take this letter. And I want them to know how much I think of them, the plans I have for them, the hope I have for them, the future that is in store for them. I want them to know I've not given up on them because I still love them because I'm the God of restoration. So look at this story with me here in chapter 29. I'm going to break down with you verses 10 to 14, and then we're also going to take a jog over to chapter 31. But chapter 29, verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Now let's stop right there. First part here of verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. It literally translates, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. God thinks about us. And I know that might seem a really super simplistic thing to say, but I want this to sink in a little bit. The people of God have rebelled against him. They've been obstinate and sinful. They are now in Babylon. And God still wants them to know, I haven't forgotten about you. I think about you all the time. I think about you. I know the thoughts that I think towards you. It's good to know that though the Jews had sinned against God, he was still thinking about them. He had not forsaken them. That even though they had been banished from the land of Judah, sent over to Babylon, they had not been banished from the heart and mind of God. That God still loved them, thought about them, has a plan for them. He's concerned about them. You know, listen, you are here today and you might feel far from God because you've sinned against him and you know you're not right with God. You know you're not in a good place with God. But I just want you to know you're heavy on his heart and mind. He still thinks about you. He has thoughts toward you. You are near and dear to the heart of God. God never loves our sin, but he still loves us and he separates what we do from who we are. And he loves us enough that he won't abandon us. He sticks closer than a brother. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Of course, his heart is broken when we sin. Of course, he's grieved over it as he was for his own children that he himself intentionally sent to Babylon as a part of disciplining them and purging them of idolatry and bringing them to a place of greater surrender. But he never forgot about them. And he never forgets about us because we're still near and dear to his heart and mind. In Psalm 139, verses 17 and 18, the psalmist says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Now listen again. He says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! Now, the psalmist is not saying that he knows the thoughts of God. So in reality, if you look at the original Hebrew, the the preposition to, when when he says here, How precious to me are your thoughts, it literally translates, How precious for me are your thoughts. How precious concerning me are your thoughts. 
That the psalmist is amazed that in all the vastness of the universe, God would stop to think about every single one of us. We are near and dear to the heart and thoughts of God. In fact, David would write in Psalm 8 verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of us? What is man that you are mindful of us? The son of man that you care about us. And David is blown away by the thought that God would think about us. That, that in all the vastness of the universe, God actually thinks about you and me specifically. And so God thinks about us, part of his restoration toward us. Number two, we also see here in this, in this passage that God is for us. The second part of verse 11 reads like this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. This is a great verse here, but let me bring some clarity to it, because over the years, some people have done damage to the text, because some people have westernized this verse. Whenever people in the the Western Hemisphere see the word prosper, they instantly think, oh, God wants to make everybody rich. That's what this means then, right? God wants everybody, I know the plans I have to prosper you. God wants everybody to be rich. That's not what he's saying here. Okay, listen, by the way, one rule of thumb is that the Bible is true, and because of that, to test how true it is, it is true no matter where you teach it, to whom you teach it, or what generation you teach it to, because God's Word is relevant to every language, nation, tribe, race, creed, culture, and generation. And so you, you should be able to read this and know, does it apply to all people, all times, all places? You can't For example, go to people living in mud huts in Uganda and convince them that this verse means God wants everybody to be rich, because that's not what this verse means. In the NIV, where the word prosper is, you can circle the word, and and whatever else translation, I think ESV says something about wholesome, it's the word in the original Hebrew, shalom. We get the word peace. God wants his overarching peace for your life. He's not promising you a new car, okay? So get that out of your head. What he's saying here transcends material things. What he's saying here is, I want for you a peace that passes all understanding. I want you to have my overwhelming goodness and favor expressed to you through my shalom, my peace in your life. This is what God wants for us. He wants us to experience his peace. Jesus would say in John 14, 27, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you my peace. It's different from what the world offers. That's why Jesus said, so let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Because when we have this overwhelming peace of God, it's better than anything in our lives. And God says, this is what I have in store for you, my peace. Now, it's important that the exiles knew this because, see, when they're feeling so estranged and distant from God, he's saying to them, I just want you to know what I have in store for you, okay? He says, I have my overwhelming peace for you. I want you to understand my wholeness and my goodness towards you. I don't intend harm for you. He said, I don't intend harm. That's the other part of this passage. No harm intended. See, when God is disciplining us, it's easy for us to think God's out to get us. He's punishing me for something. Okay, listen, there's a difference between punishment and discipline. God disciplines those whom he loves. The writer of Hebrews says that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, only painful. We get it, right? It says, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. 
So when we come through the discipline of God, we're better off for it, and we can experience a greater measure of His peace. No harm intended. This is God's peace. Now look at the other part, though, of the verse, and he says, and a hope in a future. A hope in a future. And let me tell you why that's so important for them to understand and how it translates for us. They're over in Babylon now, a thousand years separated from their homeland, often from their families, their children, everything, because they've been isolated in different parts of Babylon. And it's easy to think, man, God's done with me. God's done with me. You ever been in a bad place with God and thought to yourself, he's just done with me. There's, there's no other chance I have. And when God says here, I have a hope and a future for you, what he's saying to us is there's a future after failure. There's a future after failure. God doesn't write people off. God doesn't write anybody off. The promise for a hope and a future is for anyone. I'm not taking this out of context. This is the nature of God. Listen, if he says to his own people who have rebelled against him, worshipped other idols, sacrificed their children in the process, if he says to them in Babylon, by the way, there's a hope and a future for you. Don't you think there's a hope and a future for us? Regardless of what we might have done? There's a future after failure. One day you can ask Peter that. One day you can ask David that. They'll tell you. Yeah, it hurt what I had to go through. It hurt. God was gracious and merciful to me, though. And there was a future after my failure. That's what God is saying here. I give you a hope and a future. Punishment won't last forever. God has a purpose in mind. In the case of the Jewish people, it was to purge them of idolatry and to bring them to a greater place of surrender in their walk with Him. For us, who knows what God might be dealing with you in your life. But I know this. There's a hope and a future. God doesn't write people off. The third thing I want us to see from this passage is that God is near to us. Verses 12 to 14. Would you look at that with me? Verses 12 to 14. He says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. And I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. But I want you to notice there the invitation that God gives to them. He says, if you call upon me, if you pray to me, if you come to me, if you seek me, you'll find me. You'll find me. I've said this expression many times. I think it's so true. God is only a prayer away. He is near to us. He's only a prayer away. Again, this is a good reminder because it's easy sometimes in our sin to think that there's such a great distance between us and God. And no kidding, sin creates the distance. But listen, God is only a prayer away. That distance can be bridged through Christ. We come and we ask for forgiveness and God is nearer to us than we think. He's standing ready to receive us with open arms because God is a God of restoration. He is near to us. All we need to do is call upon Him and seek Him with all our heart, and He will be found by us. Now, some of you might be saying at this point, all right, so these three things, great, God thinks about me, God is for me, God is near to me. But how can I really experience restoration? How can I really come to the place where I really experience the fullness of what this is all about, this restoration? Okay, so God says that there are two things incumbent upon us. Those two things, this is the last point, repentance and responsibility. Repentance and responsibility. What did he want from the people? He wanted them to repent 
And he wanted them to own their sin and not blame anybody else. That's what he wanted them to do. Repent. Repent means that you are sorry about your sin and you turn from your sin, you turn towards God. That's a basic definition of repentance. And by responsibility, I mean, you'll see it in a moment. I'm going to have you turn to a few verses. He wants us to stop blaming other people for our sin and own it. Just own it. Just be responsible. This is all we have to do. You really want to experience restoration from God? Get right with them. And that comes by repentance and taking responsibility for what we do. They go hand in hand. So I'd like you to go to chapter 31. I'm going to show you a couple of verses. Chapter 31, verses 18 and 19. So we can first see the idea of repentance. Chapter 31, verse 18. God says, I have surely heard Ephraim's moaning. Okay, Ephraim is another term for the Jewish people. God says, I hear your moaning. They're over in captivity. They don't like their environment, but they've come to realize something. And here it is. They admit this. Verse 18, the rest of verse 18. You disciplined me like an unruly calf. They're saying this to the Lord. You disciplined me, didn't you? I was like an unruly calf. I was kicking. I was screaming. I was rebellious. And I have been disciplined. Restore me. There's the word, restoration. Restore me, and I will return, because you are the Lord my God. And then, and then it says, after I strayed, I repented. Circle that in your Bibles. If you have ESV, it says relented. But repent is the idea of turning from sin, turning to God. I repented. After I came to understand, I beat my breast. I was ashamed and humiliated because I bore the disgrace of my youth. See the idea here? I felt the sorrow and pain of my sin against you, God. I, I felt convicted about it. I, I, I felt sad about it. So I was, I was beating my breast. I mean, I, I was like, I was so distraught over it. And, and yet what it did was it moved me towards you, not away from you. I repented. And I, and I repent of my sin. I'm sorry for my sin. And I turn towards you. That's the idea of repentance. This is what God wants. They're only going to be restored. We're only going to be restored if we get right with God through repentance. We have to repent. We have to leave our life of sin. Turn towards God. Acts 3.19, the Bible says, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Wonderful refreshing comes from God when we repent. When we get a clean heart right with God, there's nothing quite better than that. It's just, it's just an amazing, refreshing, clean feeling that we have with the Lord. When we just repent, we get right with Him. Times of refreshing come from the Lord. Then the second idea of responsibility is found a little further in the chapter. Still there, chapter 31. Look at verses 27 to 30. Verse 27 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the offspring of men and of animals, just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down, when he, when he allows them to go into captivity, and to overthrow, destroy, and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant. This is the restoration. But he says this, verse 29, In those days, people will no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for his own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. All right, your attention. What in the world does that mean? They had a saying in that day. The saying in the day was this. Our parents eat sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge. Another way of saying it is, my parents have eaten something sour, and so I experience the tartness of it. And what they were meaning by that saying was, because my parents did something, the result was that I felt the consequences. Because my parents really are to blame for the sour taste in my mouth. 
And God's saying, listen, stop blaming your mom and dad for things. It's time you need to own your own sin. The, sin, the, the soul who sins will die. Okay? He says, stop going around saying, well, my parents ate sour grapes, so, you know, that's why I do the way I do. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm doing stuff I do because, you know, my parents said that. Stop saying that. He says, I want everybody to own up to your own sin and stop blaming other people. We need, we need to understand this, friends, because we're living in a day in which there's a diminishing responsibility. Very few people anymore take responsibility for their actions. We hear more blame and excuses than we do words like, I'm sorry, that was my fault. I take responsibility. So now people are blaming everybody and everything for why they do. Oh, I murdered somebody, but that's because I was mentally deranged, you know. So I, I plead on, on, you know, that. Or, or I, you know, I cheated on my spouse, but that was because my husband was unattentive or my wife was unloving. Or I, I, you know, I'm abusive, but the reason I'm abusive is because I had an alcoholic dad. I mean, you can play that game all day long. And God is saying, listen, if you really want to experience restoration in your own life, you can't go around saying, well, I am the way I am because of what happened. And, you know, and this was done and that was done. Listen, let me say this with sensitivity. I get, and it is true, that our environment and upbringing can shape an individual. And we need to recognize that. No kidding. The environment in which you grow up does have an impact and can shape people. I'm not denying that. What I am saying, however, is that if you really understand what a relationship with Christ is, when you are born again and Jesus Christ comes into your life, with all due respect to how you may have been shaped growing up, God reshapes you and makes all things new. And God takes your life, and in the process of the miracle of restoration, takes as the old, takes the old grimy self that you used to be, and makes you new in Christ. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. So we need to understand our new identity in Christ. And when we understand our new identity in Christ, then we can stop blaming other people. We can recognize, wait a minute, I'm a new creature. And sometimes you might have to remind yourself of your new identity in Christ because the old nature tries to creep up every once in a while. And you can play the blame game. Or you can say, in Christ, I'm a new creature. And so God has given me a new identity. And so I stand in that. And I need to own then my own sin and stop blaming other people. Oh, mom didn't hug me enough. A coach yelled at me. Okay, whatever. It's time to get beyond that. And it's time to say, but God has made me a new creature in Christ. Listen, I totally believe the next statement I'm about to make. The power of your spiritual heritage is greater than the influence of your physical parentage. I believe that with all my heart. Because of what God does in transforming an individual, the power of your spiritual heritage is greater than the influence of your physical parentage. And we need to understand how God takes old things and makes them brand new. And you'll never experience that new restoration if you're forever just, well, I am the way I am because of these people and that people and this thing happened. It may have even been painful. It may have been terrible. But at some point we have to say, okay, Christ, I I give to you my life in all of its agony, pain, and sin. And I ask you, Lord, to make me a brand new creature. And he does that because he's the one who restores old things and makes us brand new. 
towards your new life. Thanks for tuning in today for Pastor Gary Hamrick's study on Cornerstone Connection. Pastor Gary has been sharing from the writings of Jeremiah, and we hope you'll continue to tune in to dig deeper into this Old Testament book of prophecy. If you have any questions about this series, the Bible itself, or the ministry of Cornerstone Connection, please feel free to reach out. Our phone number here is 703-771-1500. And when you call, let us know how we can be praying for you. Again, our number is 703-771-1500. You can continue listening to Pastor Gary's messages right now by visiting our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc, or by downloading our mobile app. You can find a link on our website or just search for Cornerstone Chapel in your app store. Pastor Gary also has some companion study resources for many of his teachings. These are located under the Teachings tab at cornerstoneconnection.cc and are free for you to use in your own study of the Word. We'd enjoy meeting you, too. If you're in the Leesburg area, you're invited to join us at Cornerstone Chapel for our weekly services. You can get directions and service times at our website. One more time, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for in today's teaching. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know